One of the oldest journalistic cliches when you're covering Congress is when one chamber passes a bill and it's very dramatic, you write a headline and then the next day you come back with a story that says, now the hard part. Never has that been more true than with the debate over repealing and replacing Obamacare. I'm David Hawking, senior editor of CQ Roll Call, and with me today in the studio to discuss the next steps for the health care debate are Bridget Bowman, political reporter for CQ Roll Call, and Rebecca Adams, CQ Roll Call's health editor. Welcome to you both, and we'll start with you, Bridget. Uh, so what's, what's going on out there in the country this week now that the House has passed its bill with one or two votes to spare and then gone home, members have gone home to their districts to try and defend their yes or no votes? So as you mentioned, yep, House members are back in their districts. Uh, not a lot of Republicans are having town hall meetings this recess. Only a handful, a handful who voted for the Republican health care bill are actually facing their constituents. Um, one of the meetings that stood out so far is Congressman Rod Blum from Iowa. He's one of the more vulnerable members and talked to his constituents on Monday night. If you're getting your health insurance through Medicare, nothing is going to change. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. If you're getting, if you're, get, if you're currently getting your health insurance through Medicaid, nothing's going to change. You're still going to get your insurance. Now, Rebecca Adams, can you please do a little fact-checking on what Mr. Blum just said? So Mr. Blum said that um, if, you're on, if you're currently on Medicaid, then you would not be affected. Maybe he convinced himself that he was being truthful by throwing in the word currently, but there are a lot of factual problems with this statement. So the bill does a couple of things. One thing that it does is it cuts Medicaid spending growth by $880 billion dollars over 10 years. At the end, it would be a 25% cut. So this is a, a pretty significant cut. And in, in spending growth, let me be cl clear that Medicaid spending would still go up, but at a much lower rate. And the responsibility for making decisions about whether to pay doctors less or cut benefits for people or reduce eligibility would fall on states. They would have to make those decisions. So members of Congress would not be making those decisions, but those decisions would be made. And the second thing is that it also, for the people who got coverage through Obamacare, through the Medicaid expansion, the House bill would stop paying the higher federal payments for those people starting in 2020. And, and as a result, 14 million people would lose Medicaid by 2026. So, Bridget, as you said, Mr. Mr. Blum is worth listening to, uh, not only because he seems a bit fact-challenged there, uh, those are my words, not yours, <laughs> but also because, as you said, he is vulnerable, which is our shorthand way of saying that in 2018, he is already on the roster of uh, Republicans running for re-election in places that might be inclined to elect a Democrat, even before this health care issue has, has come, come to the fore. So you and I were both uh, on the Hill last week when it passed, and one of the more theatrical moments uh, in House floor history in modern times happened when, after the bill passed, the Democrats launched into a chorus of uh, sort of a song that talked about waving goodbye to yes. the Republicans. Um, are they running scared? Have they gone home collectively scared about this, or do they seem defiantly not so scared? 
Well, I think that depends who you're looking at exactly. Um, most House Republicans, as I mentioned, who voted for the bill are not holding town halls. That's according to different organizations that are tracking who's having town halls this recess. There are some members who voted for it, even those in more competitive districts who are facing their constituents and talking about it and trying to defend their votes. You have heard some similar messages from those Republicans and saying, I want to set the record straight. I want to explain why I voted for it. I think this will help people. Uh, But they're also facing some pretty angry voters who are afraid about how this is going to impact them. And these are voters not always in uh, districts that are inclined to elect Democrats, right? These These are even in some what we would call reliably red or seemingly reliably red congressional districts. Uh, correct. I think even some, like Congressman Blum's district, for example, went for Trump. Trump won it by about four points. Uh, Congressman Faso from New York, his district also went for Trump by, I believe, seven points, although he's one of the DCCC targets as well. And he had so town meetings this week. He did not. He had a meeting with senior citizens. Uh, he was just on a radio show where he took questions from callers. Uh, but he hasn't held an actual town hall meeting. Actually, Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney had a town hall meeting in Congressman Faso's district to point that out and say, well, if the congressman won't come here and answer your questions, I will. And so he had a pretty lengthy town hall on that. And that seems to be a strategy that the Democrats are going to employ. I heard right before we started recording this that uh, later in the week, Congressman Mark Pocan from Wisconsin is going to go to a neighboring district, the one represented by Speaker Paul Ryan, and do a similar thing, essentially hold a town hall to air for Mr. Ryan's constituents how the Democrats perceive this bill, which, as to state the obvious, they think it's you know the, the best thing politically that's happened to them all year and the worst thing as a matter of public policy that they've seen in a long time. Right. And we know actually of two other House Democrats that are planning to do something similar, holding events in Republican districts, uh, in districts where Republicans don't want to have town hall meetings. Though it's not actually talked to Congressman Maloney about this, and he said it's not very organized at this point. It just sort of is popping up and is especially led by activists on the ground. So the POCAN event that you mentioned has been organized by like an indivisible group and a progressive group. Uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego, a Democrat in Arizona, is going to his neighboring Republican district that was organized by the Democratic Party in the state and the local county party. So it's it's not really super organized right now, but is is turning out to be part of a strategy. And while all this is happening out in the country, uh, a group of 13 senators, uh, 13 Republican senators, has been put together by Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, to start what seems by all accounts to be a more slow and deliberative uh, process in which no false starts will be encouraged, like they had in the House, to assemble a response um, for the Senate Republicans. So at this, at this early stage, with this, um, for the moment, all-male group of Republicans, maybe a woman will be added, maybe she won't, uh, what's the general sense that you're getting for how politically the Senate Republicans think they need to respond to this? I think they definitely feel like they need to respond. As you remember from being on the Hill, it almost it seemed like almost as soon as the bill passed the House, you saw statements from Republican senators saying, we need to be cautious about this. I'm concerned about how this is going to affect coverage. Uh, we need to kind of do our own thing on this issue. And that's kind of where you see the working group moving in there. So my the analogy that I'd like to use about this, if, if I can try it with you, is... I sort of view this debate like a little bit of a balloon mm-hmm. and that the way the Republicans in the House, they, they put a bill on, uh, on the floor that didn't work. Then they've tried to push it 
sort of pushed the air in the balloon to the to the ideological right, mm-hmm. but that caused them to lose pressure on on the moderate side. Now it goes to the Senate, and all the anxiety is on the moderate side. So the Senate Republicans are going to have to push it, sort of, to in order to hold fifty Republican votes. Which, just to review the math, they've got fifty two votes plus the vote of Mike Pence if there's a tie. So really they can afford to lose only two of their own, assuming that no Democrat votes for this bill. Uh, And in order for that to happen, the bill's going to have to be more centrist than not and more centrist than what's going on on the on the Senate on that, the House side. Yeah, that's right. So you can kind of guess whatever comes out of the Senate is going to be more moderate than the House version and they're going to have to reconcile them at some point and come up with something that they think can pass both chambers and the question is when is the balloon going to pop? Like what what can they get that will actually be able to pass both chambers? So Rebecca looking way down the road, uh, how do you see the the Senate's debate? Can you can you just sketch the two or three big differences between how the Senate bill might end up versus what the, the bill the House just passed. So I do think that there are a lot of concerns about the Medicaid provisions. Uh, there have been meetings going on between moderates from expansion states and even some conservatives from expansion states like Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who are worried about reducing the population of the working poor who rely on Medicaid now. So I do think there'll be some changes to Medicaid. I do think there'll be changes to the tax credits that the House bill has. The House bill would take um, the Obamacare tax credits, which were based on income and the cost of care, throw them out and replace them with age-related tax credits. And that ends up hurting people who are, who are older, generally, um, because of other com- parts of the bill as well. So um, there are there are definitely going to be some changes to try to help people who are lower income. And there also will probably not be provisions to defund Planned Parenthood and other things like that. So Bridget, as we are talking, this working group in the Senate side that's going to put this bill together is is a group of 13 men. The Republicans seem to be realizing that this is really not very good optics. Uh, political optics to have a, a bill that is a central aspect of which is going to be uh, coverage of women's health issues and and coverage or non-coverage uh, of reproductive choice issues or abortion issues, however you, you phrase that. Uh, they have only five uh, Republican women to choose from. Do you feel like in the end, politically, it is in their best interest to put a woman on this panel? I think so, especially, as you mentioned, with this bill affecting women's health issues, to not have a woman's voice in the room would be detrimental to them. And we know that Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia was in one of the first meetings this week uh, talking about the Medicaid expansion. So she could be one person that they bring in. Uh, Senator Susan Collins from Maine has worked on her own bill, uh, a more moderate version. And so it's not clear if they maybe will want to bring her in, since she would be a little more contrarian, maybe. So... I don't know. I think I think you're right. That I think they will eventually have to bring in a woman senator on this. Bottom line question: Will the Affordable Health Care Act still be the law of the land one year after President Trump takes office? I think I've given up making predictions, given what we saw before. I would never have predicted that the House Speaker would put on the House floor a bill and then pull it and then revive it after declaring that Obamacare was going to be the law of the land. And we have seen fits and starts. This is an unpredictable debate in an unpredictable administration. So how about you, Bridget? What's your crystal ball telling you? Will they 
Will they find a bill that can pass both the House and the Senate <laughs> by the end of the year? Um, I don't I don't know. It seems so difficult, as you were mentioning before, to try and find some ways to satisfy the moderates and the conservatives in, in the Republican Party. And even though you see this optic of, well, Republicans control Congress and the White House. Why can't they get this done? But it's so complicated. I don't, I don't know how they can reconcile that. So I'll try, I'll, I'll give you my answer since I asked you both. I have been, <laughs> uh, I have been willing to take an even money bet all year long uh, that a year after President Trump's inauguration, the statute will be unchanged by Congress. Uh, I'm still going with that. And I think, I think they're stuck for the reasons you just more eloquently described than I could. Uh, that'll do it for us today on the Big Story Podcast. I'm David Hawkins, the senior editor of Roll Call. My guests today, Bridget Bowman, political reporter at CQ Roll Call and health editor for CQ, Rebecca Adams. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on NPR One. <laughs>